2: From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, bears who break and enter, elephants who commit manslaughter, and deer who jaywalk. They're all the subject of science writer Mary Roach's latest book, Fuzz, When Nature Breaks the Law. Roach spent two years embedding with elephant attack specialists, bear forensics investigators, and professional bird scarers. We'll talk to Roach about the quirky, complex world of human-wildlife conflict prevention and what it can teach us about how to coexist more peacefully with our wild animal neighbors. Stay with us. This is Forum. I'm Nina Kim. There are people who make sure a bear isn't wrongly accused of an apparent mauling or who figure out ways to avoid conflicts between humans and elephants. These are the specialists Mary Roach introduces us to in her new book titled Fuzz, When Animals Break the Law. And in sharing what people in charge of handling such conflicts face, Roach also shows us why animals and humans are encroaching more on each other's spaces and invites us to consider better ways to coexist. Mary Roach, welcome to Forum. Thank you so much. The title of your book, Fuzz, it's very cute (laughs) (laughs) and fitting in that it both evokes animals and is how some people referred to cops
3: back in the day, right? Yes, that is, that is the, uh, the, the um, thought behind that title. Of course, I was thinking, will anybody under 40 remember that the fuzz was the police? Are people <laughs> just going to go, what is this book about? <laughs> I'm glad you got it, oh, Nina.
2: <laughs> I, I did get it. And of course, it goes really well with your frame of animals breaking the law, which of course they don't really do since they're unaware of laws and are acting on instinct when they commit as you say, manslaughter, breaking and entering, vandalism. Um, But you also make clear that these actions by animals have some really traumatic consequences for humans and on our human structures, so they must be dealt with. And I really love the way that you opened your book with this great illustration um, where you talked about the people who investigate maulings, And I'm wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about them and about what the acronym WART is and the WART class you took.
3: Sure. WART, uh, W-H-A-R-T, stands for Wildlife Human Attack Response Training, a terrible acronym, (laughs) as its founder (laughs) readily admits. So WART is a five-day training session. And I was lucky enough to be able to, to take the course. Part of it is classroom. Uh, and part of it is uh, an uh, actual simulated uh, attack scene. And we also worked on these soft mannequins that had been, uh, <laughs> they'd been basically mauled <laughs> with it. They'd been uh, altered so that they, they appeared to have the actual um, uh, wounds that you would have in the, in the case of a real attack. And they were based on real victims. In other words, uh if it was a bear mauling you know there's a fair amount of harm uh, to the face often Uh, so they say they were very realistic and they were quite gory so we were we were looking at those because the first thing that you do if you are a predator attack response specialist you come into the scene where the body is Mm. and you first you you secure the scene and um you you, t- you, you bring the victim in and you, you're looking to figure out what exactly, what, what species, because it's not clear always, was this an animal or a human? So first of all, human versus animal. And then what kind of animal? Was it a bear? Was it a wolf? Was it a mountain lion? And, and this is something you can tell by uh, often because the, the, the way the animal attacks is unique. Because the way their teeth are, or also, uh, you know, some uh, cougars, for example, are um, are are true carnivores. They're preying on animals to eat them. Whereas bears, bears are omnivores. Their their mouth isn't set up for uh, killing, and so they're they're more grinders. So Mm. there tends to be uh, messier um, injuries to to the body. So anyway, it's a um, first establishing what uh, what species might have killed this person, and then um, trying to figure out uh, which individual animal. So in this similar to when it's a human that's killed another human, you would be trying to establish linkage, often through DNA, uh, from saliva or blood uh, between the victim and the animal. The animal, whether it was shot on the scene or it's been trapped shortly thereafter, um, you want to figure out. Do we have the right creature? And if not, um, the suspect is released. And, and there was a case up in Canada where there were two, uh, a couple of bears caught in the proximity of this uh, attack, uh, and both and neither one was a match. So both of those bears were released. They eventually did uh, trap the right, the right bear, the bear that had committed this uh, mauling. And uh, so, so it is. It's it's uh, there are a lot of similarities to your CSI and your. You know uh, police procedurals, some of the uh, some of the same and the, you know the scene is sealed off, set off with the yellow tape and there's evidence flags and you know you're looking for blood spatter patterns. it's fascinating.
2: yeah, it really does have this CSI feel to it and I loved how you were talking about the importance of figuring out which animal did it, but also even if it was an animal, as in the case of the hiker that was found with neck wounds that looked like a cougar bite that actually ended up being uh, murdered by a human being. Using an ice pick, and uh, and then you also bring up the example of Lindy Chamberlain's baby, and how they accused her of doing it when it ended up being a dingo, I believe. So that's um, right. So, typically in the U.S., what do we do to an animal when it is found guilty?
3: Uh, In the case of uh, an animal that's killed, a wild animal that's that's killed somebody or harmed somebody, in both the U.S. and in Canada, where they have a a lot of bears, um, that animal is, is destroyed. That's that that's what's done.
2: What is the rationale for that? Is it just the concern that if they, they attack once, they'll attack again, that they have a predisposition to do
3: that? Well, it's a, it's considered that animal is, is, is an animal that, and with the case with, with bears, which is, you know, far more, far more, I mean, still rare, but far more common than mountain lions. Um, Typically, uh, in ninety percent of the cases of, of people being harmed by bears, these are bears that have habituated to, to humans. So they're they're they've stopped feeling uncomfortable or threatened by people. They've mm. lost their shyness. So when a bear starts to realize, okay, there's a lot of, of good food, good eating in the you know around this uh, person's house, they're not securing their trash or whatever it is, and so the bear gets bolder uh and may sort of start uh, may actually break into the house when people are gone and sometimes when they're there uh and that boldness you know it inches toward aggression and you know you get between a bear and its food and you can get hurt you know it just uh uh, it's it's kind of playing with fire so when a bear is um, a bear is starting to do this repeatedly then um that's uh, and and some and somebody gets hurt, uh, the feeling is this is a bear that is habitually breaking in, and this could happen again. Hmm. Uh, so um, that's, it's not so much, oh, it's, it's developed a taste for human flesh or anything like that. It's, um, it's just more that this is, this is a bear that's figured out, hey, there's some, some easy eating inside these big boxes with refrigerators, and I'm going to keep doing this. And it's, at a certain point, as with burglars breaking into a house, um, as long as no one's there, nobody gets hurt. But if someone's home and someone's startled and someone has a gun or claws and teeth in this case, somebody can get hurt. So that's the thinking.
2: It's interesting. So just to underscore your point earlier that it's rare to be fatally attacked by a bear in the wild, but it really is quite common to encounter bears scavenging for food in human spaces and breaking and entering. As you say, can you share a few of the bear burglary stories you've heard, or at least a few of the remarkable ones where their dexterity was really quite incredible?
3: Sure. Yeah. I spent some time with uh, Curtis Tesch, who works for Colorado Parks and Wildlife. And uh, it so happened that the day I was there uh, kind of shadowing him, there had been a break-in up in the hills uh, above Aspen. And so we went to the scene and uh, the bear had come in through, this was a, it's up in the mountains, and it was one of those houses that kind of flows down the hillside. So there's three levels, each with a deck. Very nice house, and the bear had come in through the uh, a door on the the lower deck, and you could see the you know the screen was just sort of bent, <laughs> almost folded in half, lying on the floor. And the bear had gone up the stairs, amazingly, not knocking anything over on the way to the kitchen. And then it was kind of mayhem. There's ice cream, a jar of honey. I loved that there was honey. They did still a favorite, <laughs> uh, cottage cheese, all, all manner of stuff strewn around. Uh, but but, the, but um, the, Curtis was saying that what surprised him, you know, I thought I'd be getting bear stories, you know, kind of violent kind of scenes that he's witnessed or, or, or heard about. But he, he, what he re- found remarkable was, was sort of the gentleness and dexterity. Like he said, they'll reach into the refrigerator and pull out a carton of eggs and set it aside. Or there was a bear that, and this is hard to believe, but this is what I'm told. There was a bear that unwrapped a Hershey's kiss and ate it, which is kind of amazing if you've seen their claws Um, and uh, they have preferences too. They're the one woman who investigates these things in a neighboring uh, ski community. She said that uh, the bears of Pitkin County prefer premium ice cream brands they will not touch western family ice cream which i guess is the budget choice <laughs> so wow they have these these it's very endearing yeah quite a palette these yeah, they very it, these kind of endearing traits that um, that uh, make, it, it make it it makes it very sad when you hear about one that's put down
2: yeah you talk about Bears seeking food from humans, especially before hibernation, when they need as many as like twenty thousand calories a day. But I was struck by your description about how bears may be hibernating less, which may me make that sort of interactive time uh yes. longer. Can you explain that a little bit?
3: Sure. Yeah, there was a study out of uh Colorado, they they radio collared, I think it was uh fifty or sixty uh black bears, and they uh were comparing temperature and, and the length of their hibernation. Uh, and, and what they found is that for every approximately two degrees Fahrenheit increase in temperature, that is temperature of, in wet, outdoors, the weather, uh, the hibernation period shortens by a week. And they projected that by 2050, that would be between 15 and 40 fewer days in hibernation, which means 15 to 40 more days out on the land looking for food, getting into conflicts with people. So um, there is kind of a a link with uh, climate change and uh, bear conflicts. Hmm.
2: We're talking with Mary Roach. A science writer whose latest book is Fuzz, When Nature Breaks the Law. And I want to invite you, our listeners, to join the conversation. Have you had a close encounter with a wild animal? What happened? And what are your thoughts on how humans can better coexist with wild animals? You can call us at 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. Email us, forum at kqed.org. Or post your thoughts on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. We'll have more after the break. Stay with us
0: support for forum comes from san francisco opera
2: You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking with Mary Roach about her new book, Fuzz, When Nature Breaks the Law, which has a lot of fascinating stories and science of human-wildlife conflict. And you, our listeners, are invited to join the conversation with Mary Roach. If you have had a close encounter with a wild animal, what happened? You can call us at 866-733-6786. You can email us, forum at kqed.org, or post comments on Twitter or Facebook. Robert writes, animals mind their own business and not until we encroach on their natural habitats. Quote, attacks by animals are almost always our fault. We are the most threatening and destructive species. Most animals shake their heads in wonder when regarding us. You have talked with with wildlife specialists and agencies about the best way to deal with, as you illustrated just before the break, what will likely be growing interaction and potential conflict between humans and wild animals are there strategies that they found to deter them so it doesn't get to the point where ultimately an animal attacks and is put down
3: yeah uh i mean as with uh, any criminal criminal justice system professional can tell you the um the prevention is, is far better than punishment so uh and with the case of bears um it's it's been shown to be quite effective to have bear-resistant trash containers, uh, you know, especially behind restaurants in, you know, in cities uh, that, like Aspen that have a lot of bears coming in at night and foraging. So, but, uh, so, so yes, bear-resistant containers. But you also need to um, have laws that tell people that they have to use these and use them correctly. And you have to enforce those laws. And that doesn't always happen. So it seems like a simple solution. Uh, and it is it is very effective when it's used properly. There was one study that looked at um, compliance, and in, in, in communities where people comply and actually do it right, there was uh, a, 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 quite a small number of conflict calls. And in the same, when it, when when eighty percent of the people did it right, very few calls. When ten percent of the people complied, something like two hundred and fifty conflict calls. I think forty two was the other number. So it does work, but uh, it, it requires um, personnel. Somebody's got to do the enforcing. Somebody's got to write the tickets and do the patrolling. And some of these towns don't have the personnel. You also have to work with the waste management companies to make sure that the, you know, these, the containers that are being used will fit their trucks. Sometimes there's resistance there. Mm-hmm. The other problem with... Um, Some of the, uh, you know, in in these ski resort areas, there are a lot of vacation rentals. So people coming in from out of town who don't realize what happens to these animals when they get habituated to people and their food. They don't realize, you know, you by leaving your trash can unsecured are contributing to this animal's eventual demise. So what seems like a simple prevention technique, that is to say, you know, uh, keeping your trash locked up, um, it, it's surprisingly complicated and um, I agree with was it Robert who just called in um, we, we are the problem um, people that can't be bothered to you know secure their trash or they or they leave out a bag of dog food or they've got bird feeders and that's not anything they're doing intentionally uh, they, they just either don't realize or can't be bothered um, and the the results are are tragic for the for the animal
2: hmm. Let me go to caller Wanda in Oakland. Wanda, join us. Yes.
4: Yes. Uh, Three generations of my family have worked in Sequoia National Park, uh, and I'm 80. And when I was about five or six, my sister, who was at the campsite supposedly taking care of me, abandoned me to go to the dance, the teenager's dance down in the the lodge, and I was left alone alone sleep under a tent and the bear brought the tent down over my head, but she didn't hurt me. And she, you know, messed up all the food that my sister had not put away, which it might've been okay if she'd put the food away, but she hadn't. Mm. So when my mother came home, my mother blamed my sister, not the bear. And the the thing is, my question is, why can't we take and separate our food so that we put up clean garbage you know for the bears someplace aside from where humans are and give them water give them food if we're going to pay to throw this garbage away why don't we use clean garbage allow the bears to forage in it and you know if if they know there's a place where they can get it they'll come but especially water we need to provide water for the animals
3: Mary Rush, I think you would have some thoughts on that. Well, I think, uh, yeah, I mean, that's a harrowing story uh, because I, you know, I do hear about, you know, when you, you look at bear fatalities and there was one earlier this year that had to do with somebody having food, uh, in, in the tent. Um, I go backpacking with my husband and we, the one thing we're very, very careful to do is put the food in a uh, bear bag and, you know, hoist it up into a, into a tree. Um, because that's, you know, that's when you, uh, that's when you have problems is when you have something that this animal wants, um, you know, if, and if you don't, I mean, bears, you know, bears will, will forage on their own and, and find food naturally. Um, th- feeding bears, I mean, that, that is, uh, uh, I guess the, there's some people who advocate that there's disagreement over whether that's something one should do. But um, you know here in, in California, with with the situation with wildfires wildfires, um, when f- food becomes, food and water becomes scarce, then of course they're going to come into town and, and searching for food. So um, yeah, I, that is uh, quite a story.
2: <laughs> I'm glad you were okay. me too. John Wright, speaking to the cleverness and dexterity of bears, we had a black bear in the Sierra National Forest who learned to break through the right taillight of Honda Civics and then trigger the trunk latch. Clever animals indeed. Uh, if bears break and enter, not just attack or kill, do they tend to be killed as well? I've seen the argument that bears that break into buildings will teach their young to do that and the problem escalates so that they need to be taken out too.
3: Well, yes, there, there, there's a fair amount of recidivism <laughs> that I mean, you can, um, um, you, you know, you can, you can remove a bear, you can take it, you know, take it either back to the closest woods wooded area or translocate it much farther away. And that is sometimes done that, that it, it's a challenge, though, in that bears are very good at finding their way back. I think the record for a bear finding its way back to its home turf is and. 42 miles or 152 miles, uh, uh, including uh, an ocean swim along part of it. So they're quite good at at coming back. Uh, There was a a study that looked at how many translocated bears find their way back. Uh, And uh, this is, I think it was, there's a large number um, Mm. that find their way back. And the other thing that um, limits that is that if you, as an agency, move a bear to, uh, you know, hundred or 200 miles away and it finds its way into the closest community there. And it begins doing the same things and somebody gets hurt or killed. Then you as the agency are liable. So there's that issue as well, which is a concern for some of these wildlife agencies.
2: We're talking with Mary Roach, a science writer and her latest book is fuzz when nature breaks the law. You might know Mary Roach from her earlier books, grunt, stiff, spook, gulp, bonk. <laughs> you like these one-word uh, one-word titles, of course. And uh, for this conversation, tell us if you've had a close encounter with a wild animal, but also if you have any go-to strategies to discourage wild animals from attacking you or damaging your property because of what the outcome can be. And Your thoughts on how humans can better coexist with animals. Email us, forum at kqed.org. Get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. Or call us, 866-733-6786. Mary Roach, I want to talk to you about elephants and how the attitude toward them in India. You devote uh, a lot of your book to wild elephants of West Bengal. And it, it was really fascinating to read that in that region, elephants have killed more than 400 people in the last five years. First, can you talk a little bit about about that and and why that was so surprising to you, but also the way that India's government and
3: its policies treat elephants that kill? Sure. Well, it came as a, a shock to me that elephants kill 500 people. I was raised on bar and Dumbo and National Geographic I just don't think of those animals as um, harming humans ever uh, but it, it it's a it's a big problem there uh, especially in the north where there's they call it the elephant corridor and these animals are migrating through uh, the, the the nation and there's things that have come in that have been sort of military installations and highways and refugee communities and so there uh, the elephant corridor has been Broken up and there's there's their path is blocked and so they've become sort of stuck in smaller areas and elephants they travel in groups they eat a lot of food uh, and so when they start running out of natural food they turn to the crops of villagers and that of course is very upsetting to villagers who uh, will come running out and try to take matters into their own hands and that's when things get dangerous because it's often nighttime. And people run out. They may have, you know, fire on a stick. They're yelling. They're shooting off firecrackers. The elephants, you know, panic and go in various directions. And when you break apart um, a social group of elephants, they get nervous. They get, they feel threatened, and they get aggressive. Uh, so you've got people running around and shouting, and elephants, and it's dark. And as my mother liked to say, somebody's going to get hurt, and that's that's what often happens. Um, so. The, uh, but what's interesting, the, the, um, the government will, uh, rather than coming in and, and killing an animal, it compensates the family. There's a, a government compensation scheme if someone in the family is killed, you know, whether it's by an elephant or a leopard. I also spent some time in, a, in an area of the Himalaya where there's, uh, there are uh, leopard attacks on humans. So that's the approach. There's also uh, with the leopards, a, a three strikes kind of rule. So they'll you know, monitor the situation and only if it, if it appears to be um, a pattern that this, this is an animal that is doing this over and over, then, hmm. then they'll come in um, with a uh, hire a hunter or a government hunter will come in. But it's not an immediate um, death sentence as it is here in the U.S. and in Canada when an animal... Harms or kills a person.
2: Yeah. And similar with monkeys, who I don't know if they're as revered as elephants, especially in the city where they've been described as pests. They've done things like caused people to fall from balconies. They've bitten children. But it sounds like when you talk to people, they say, we don't want them to be killed for this. Right. We just want them to be managed.
3: Right, right, right. Um, India's interesting. It's interesting to look at how uh, how people feel about wildlife in, in, in a Hindu country, um, because the, the, the animals that are that are considered. Pests, you know, that are causing problems to monkeys, elephants, um, uh, some antelope, which are thought of as, you know, they have the word cow in the title. You know, antelope it has guy or cow in the in the word. So they're they're um, they're they're deities. I mean, there's you know. Uh, um, Hanuman and Ganesh are, are deities that you know the monkey and the elephant. So people have this reverence for them, and they uh, they don't want them killed. It's very difficult for the government of Delhi to hire a monkey catcher or anybody who's going to be doing anything to interfere with these monkeys' lives because they're they're um, they are in the they're deities. So that is uh, makes it very difficult to uh, solve these problems. People. Uh, want them to, they want the problem to disappear, but they don't want anyone to harm the animals. So it's, it makes, uh, it's a very vexing problem for the, the person in charge of it, whom who I spoke to.
2: Let me go to Peter in San Francisco next. Hi, Peter.
5: Yes, hi. Um, I was concerned uh, about where are the animals' rights and the laws for the animals' It seems to me that a good deal of the problem at least could be acknowledged or I haven't heard it acknowledged uh, has to do with people basically evicting animals from their habitats without due process, uh, destroying their homes uh, and Hmm. and other sorts of things like that, hunting them and so on and so forth. So I'm wondering where that uh, stands in terms of fundamental causes of uh, conflict.
2: Well, Peter, thanks for that, because, of course, as you were describing Mary Roach earlier about the corridor and some of the encounters happening as a result of habitat loss, and uh, and then, of course, earlier we're talking about climate change issues and things that really aren't necessarily the animal's fault, right? As, as Peter is bringing out. And I wonder if you're, as you're juxtaposing sort of India's approach to handling animals, even animals that kill versus the U.S.'s, if you are asking us to think more like maybe Peter is suggesting.
3: Yeah. You know, I, um, one of the most interesting things I heard was, uh, uh, I spoke to a, a, a bear biologist, um, I think he was in Mich- Michigan or Minnesota. I can't remember now, but he had spent some time on the Tibetan plateau and he spoke to um, this person in a village where sometimes you know, pe- there's a um, nomadic herders and they go out, they're gone for periods of time and they come back and the bears have often um, ransacked their houses, but they, they take this in stride. They don't, they're like, they, they don't feel that something should be done to, to punish the bears. And he said to them, because he works with bears here and, He's in a state where people often just, you know, take matters in their own hands and um, shoot the bears on their property. He said, "If you saw a bear on top of a person mauling them, uh, would you would you shoot the bear?" And the, and the the person said, "I don't have the right to choose whose life is more important." And I thought that was an amazing. I mean, he did. He just wouldn't. He wouldn't hear that. Here, from an, I, I mean here, the you know the wildlife agencies here, um, their job is first and foremost to protect people, public safety. So that's that is the priority, and uh, I think, I mean, I, I think we've come a long way in terms of not automatically just deciding to shoot or kill. I mean, there's a lot, um, there are. A lot more non-lethal strategies that are employed. I mean, it's a, it's a, a slow ship to turn, but it is turning, and and not in the not as far as as uh, it hasn't come anywhere near to the philosophies that that Peter was talking about. I mean, the people will still be, are still the priority. Uh, they take priority over animals when it comes to safety. But um, but I mean, you know, uh, there's one hopeful note. Um, the uh, wildlife services, which is the people that come in when um, agriculture or ranchers are having issues with animals uh, taking their stock, um, the the and and often it was a lethal solution. They would, just, they would you know wildlife services would come in and trap or you know in decades past there were bounties and poisonings and and um, they're now hiring non-lethal specialists in in twelve states. There's been funding for um, having more people who'll come in and say, how can we prevent this? Like, can we have people, you know, range riders who look at, you know, sort of supervise what's going on with the stock while they're grazing? Is there any, is there an animal denning, you know, a predator denning close by? Should we move them? Should we change the way um, the, the grazing is done? Or, you know, what can we build better nighttime enclosures that will prevent these animals from taking your livestock? Can you cut the brush back so a mountain lion doesn't have a place to hide? So they're, instead of just paying lip service to this, they're actually starting to do more of it. So there's a bit of a culture change underway at wildlife services and that's a a hopeful thing for me. Um, It doesn't sound like much, I think, uh, if you're hoping for animals to have equal rights with humans, Um, but it it is progress. We have made some progress here
2: well erica writes i just returned from mutual aid for the caldor fire in california we were chasing bears out of evacuated homes and saw how they eat ice cream bars but not the wrappers or sticks i worried (laughs) how the bears would react when the families return home we're talking with mary roach her new book is fuzz when animals break the law mary roach turned around with people like bear managers human elephant conflict specialists and even danger tree faller blasters her enlightening and often funny book is a subject of this hour and we'll talk more with her about how to deal with close encounters with wild animals and how we can better coexist with them and if you want to share your thoughts on that 866 is the number. Stay with us. I'm Nina Kim. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking with Mary Roach, science writer, about her book, Fuzz, about bears, elephants, and other wildlife, and how experts are trying to manage and prevent conflict with humans. And let me go to caller Daniel in San Francisco. Hi, Daniel. Thanks for waiting.
5: Oh, hi. Thanks. Yeah, this is a great conversation. Um, And it occurs to me that um, the story in California may be a little bit different from other places. In California, you know, a lot of these encounters are really a result of Successful efforts to coexist with these animals instead of just killing them, and I work for the California Institute for Biodiversity, and and there's there's a lot of good, you know, basically a lot of this can be considered success story, where you know as a result of caring for the habitat and stopping, you know, killing animals, we're seeing them return. Um, you know, Bay Nature has a, a movie showing. Uh, real soon if you go to baynature.org on, you know, entitled Don't Feed the Coyotes um, about the return of coyotes to San Francisco, which even though it's a metropolis, it's going fairly smoothly. And you know, we can do what the bears do. We can learn from each other and improve our practices. So for example, in Los Angeles, Council Member Paul Koretz put together a pilot study on wildlife, a five-year study that has now resulted in a, a wildlife ordinance that creates development regulations for the Los Angeles hinterlands um, that actually kind of help us figure out how to coexist uh, and have houses near nature, uh, but without, you know, doing the bad old stuff of, you know, encroaching and then killing. Uh, so it's really encouraging. This year's budget in California has millions and millions of dollars for for solutions. A lot of money to pay people who've been impacted by wildlife incursions, um, as was mentioned um, earlier, you know, where there's depredation. Instead of killing the animal, we'll pay the farmer. And then there's even money to build freeway overpasses and stuff like that so that, you know, not only can they coexist without having to go through our backyards, but um, we actually have a lot fewer vehicle fatalities. So, once again, you know, California's story is a little bit different from the others, and hopefully other places can learn from what we're doing, and we can continue to to improve our practices here.
2: I love that, Daniel. Thanks so much for sharing that. Um, Mary Ridge, I don't know if you have a comment, but... It also makes me think of—I mean, not just bears and elephants and, and mountain lions and so forth, but—but but we do encounter wildlife every single day, and even on that level, just around our properties or places where we go to recreate, we we can have a very different attitude toward them. Um, and I think one of the things that really made that hit home for me was your chapter about. Birds. You you have a several chapters about birds, but you have this one in particular that's pretty funny. That's about gulls and what happened on Easter morning, twenty seventeen, outside of uh, the Vatican in Rome. And I, I'm wondering if uh, you, Mary Roach, can tell us a little bit about what happened and how that
3: was resolved. Well, sure. Yeah. The the um, this is a story that. Uh, has to do with the Pope's Easter Mass. Uh, Every Easter uh, early in the morning, the Pope comes out on the balcony and he says mass for a gathered crowd of tens of thousands of people. And the day and the night before, these florists have driven down from the Netherlands with three refrigerated truckloads of blooms, like 6,000 daffodils and all these cut roses. And this is elaborate floral display that is set up on the steps leading up to the altar and all around the altar. And what happened in 2017 was that around 4.30 in the morning, a few hours before the crowds were let in, a bunch of gulls came in and essentially just vandalized the scene. There were just, you know, <laughs> daffodils strewn everywhere. There were roses. It looked like a diva ballerina had done her last performance. <laughs> it was just a mess. And they weren't, you know, gulls eat just about anything, but not plants. They're not they're not daffodil eaters. Right. So it just seemed to be uh, that... Um, Wanton vandalism. There are a couple of theories about what might have happened, but the need was in years, you know, in the next coming years. Uh, how can we prevent this? And so the florist uh, appealed to the public in the Netherlands. What can I do? And he heard from this man who said, "I have been scaring birds for 25 years. I will bring my laser scarecrow." And so that is what happened. Uh, the, I, I went along this past Easter. or or the year before last, uh, to watch the laser scarecrow in action. And it was, you know, quite high drama. I was there for the whole setup of the flowers, and it was its elaborate um, floral display. And, in fact, the lasers seemed to work. Uh, The gulls sort of hung out on the edges, kind of sleeping on the cobblestones, going, yeah, whatever. (laughs) That was so last year that floral vandalism thing. Uh, So the, uh, the, the scarecrow seemed to work, but it was funny to me. I mean, it's basically like a laser light show. It's just sort of zooming around. And when the light is low, birds apparently perceive this beam as a stick coming at them. It's actually called the stick effect. (laughs) (laughs) So um, the birds stayed away. The lasers did their thing. Um, but I what what was kind of amazing to me was uh, because laser, you know, it was expensive to fly a couple of these big laser boxes down there from the Netherlands uh, and, along with the operator. And I was like, you know, you have those guys in the striped knickers with the, you know, funny, the Swiss guard. Why didn't you just pay a guy double time to kind of hang out on the altar and shoo the birds? And that's, you know, a human bird scare that's the, you know, the time-honored tradition, that's what people used to do, hire young boys to run around with a noisemaker scaring them off. So and I, and he said, no, we didn't really think about that. And it's it's good for Andre, the inventor of the laser scarecrow. <laughs> it's good for Andre that we didn't think of that because I think now the Vatican um, is the, the Vatican city-state now owns its own laser scarecrows.
2: Well, that's definitely one deterrent solution that worked. The other thing that I thought was interesting is you also help to reframe the way we view gulls that that they have endearing qualities that we don't always think of when we think of
3: them. They do. Gulls are. I love gulls. Good gulls. Yeah, they're one of the. Uh, it's not all that common for uh, the male to be uh, involved in raising the children. The gulls are. You know, they're they're good dads. The male gulls. And uh, when gulls uh, uh, often when gulls se- seem to be very aggressive toward people, people have wandered too close to to a nest. They get very defensive. Um, and again, they're uh, they've just you know it's because we drop our trash all over the place. There's there's food you know in tourist areas like Fisherman's Wharf. There's just constantly French fries and sourdough bread and. Mussels and whatever seafood items that, that have been dropped that are all over the place. So of course the gulls are are going to come in and they're going to see the food and uh, eat it and then see it in people's hands and go, you know, I bet I could get that one too. And then you know, then they then they become branded as a nuisance species. So anyway, yeah. I like I like gulls.
2: I, I like sort of the paradigm shift aspect of of your book in the sense that even you learn to look at rats in new ways, but. Uh, but let me go to call her Bess in Siskiyou County. Hi Bess. So
4: and by the way don't feed the bears that they will just come back for more. But I had an encounter with a mountain lion a few months back where I was walking very quietly along the creek and I all of a sudden I heard Burr. I looked up, and there was the face of this gorgeous, huge mountain lion not four feet from my head. Oh, my gosh. She looked in my eyes. I looked in hers, and she turned around and walked away. I'm just saying, when you're in the woods, you need to make sound so the animals know that you're there. They don't want to hurt you, but don't surprise them.
3: Mm, Best, Very good advice, Bess. Yes.
2: Bye. And, and great story. And <laughs> no. And actually, we're getting a couple of questions about about mountain lions. One listener writes, "Why don't they tranquilize and relocate mountain lions instead of killing them?" Mary
3: Roach. Sure. Uh Well, it's so so rare that a mountain lion does attack a person. I mean, uh, uh, here in California a decade will go by without a, uh, fatality. It's, it's, uh, we're not on the menu for mountain lions. They're, 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 we're not what they hunt and kill to eat. You know, they, they want to be eating, you know, deer and wild pigs, smaller, uh, smaller animals. They, they it, when it happens, it's, it's just so rare. So, uh, relocation is, uh, not, I mean, uh, it's not a policy that, I mean, because it, because it happens so rarely, it's just um, not, it's not done very often in in, India. I will say in India, they do, they have translocated leopards that are preying on people. Um, And a couple of things happen. One is, is while the leopards are in captivity on the way to wherever they're going, they kind of, they habituate to humans and they lose a bit of their fear of, of humans, which is problematic. And they also Tend to become more ag- aggressive. Uh, the, the period in captivity, the period of translocation, seems to seems to make them more aggressive, and so they've ended up with more killings in the areas where they've been translocated. Um, that's leopards. You know, obviously, I don't uh, I don't have a similar scenario for mountain lions here. But relocation is is occasionally done. Um, certainly with with bears. Um, it, again, they tend to find their way back, or sometimes uh, get into trouble in the new location. And mm. as I mentioned before, that's a, a liability right. issue for the agency. If it, if the animal uh, carries out that behavior again, where it's been relocated, uh, the agency would be liable. And Unfortunately, in our culture, liability is, uh, is a, a big factor sometimes.
2: And to underscore how Bess started her comment about bears, Elaine, who's a former Tuolumne summer ranger, writes, I heard the caller who was advocating leaving clean food for bears. While I can understand the special trauma caused by the wildfires, feeding bears is what caused decades of negative and often tragic encounters with bears who became dependent on humans for food. Also, for many years now, hanging your food in trees in the Sierras is no longer effective because bears have learned how to reach it. You must use bear canisters or bear boxes. We're talking with Mary Roach about bears, elephants, birds, seagulls, other wildlife, and how experts are trying to manage and prevent conflict with them, with humans. Mary Roach's new book is Fuzz, When Nature Breaks the Law. Mary Roach is a science writer who's written a book, Gulp, about the digestive tract and Stiff, about cadavers. And this new one is about wild animal and human encounters, strategies for how to discourage attacks or damage, and and really thinking about how to better coexist with animals. And you can always join the conversation 866-733-6786 by emailing forum at kqed.org or reaching us on Twitter or Facebook at KQED forum. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. So towards the end of your book, Mary, which you have this sort of practical guide that has resources that you suggest that people can go to to deal with the wild animals that are on their properties, anything from like squirrels or rats or possums or things. Can you first talk a little bit about, um, well, why you wanted to include that, why it was important for you to include the the tips and resources for ways to do it that may not involve like trapping them?
3: Sure. Um, I think that with these smaller animals that come into our, Backyards and into our attics. Uh, I mean, we, we've gotten used to the word "pest," and I don't yeah. like the word "pest" because it puts the animal completely in the context of our existence, and I think it gives us it, it gives us a permission to just uh, call the exterminator to just get rid of them. They are a pest. I'm going to just deal with it. Uh, so you, you know, to think of them as a, a pest rather than an animal. Uh, I think it just makes it it makes it too easy to to just decide to poison or trap or call the exterminator when in fact, there are lots of things you can do to first of all to prevent them coming onto your property or into your house. you can practice exclusion you can figure out how are they getting in well there 's ways to keep them from doing that. Um, what are they attracted to? Can I um, stop having that item around um, the resource guide at the back of the book uh, just because there's so many different species and each species has its own solution and I wasn't really writing a handbook for people so um, I refer people to the Humane Society of the United States has a what to do about dot 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 and then you know it's by species so you can look up whatever animal uh, you're having trouble with and there'll be some solutions. They've also got uh, uh, a very um, well-crafted page on how to choose a humane wildlife control operator because sometimes they'll say you know we're humane and that just means we use humane killing methods which is different from somebody who's going to come in and say um, put a one-way door up on the where they're coming in and out of your attic so the animals can come out the mother and the babies because often they've come in to nest and have young so the uh, so to to prevent a situation where you exclude the mother but the babies are still in there. And then, you know, of course, the, the babies would die of starvation. I mean, I, I, this is a traumatic thing for me because we did that with a squirrel. We kind of blocked the opening and thought, okay, we've solved the problem. And that squirrel kept coming back over and over. I'm like, that's a really determined squirrel. And the guy from the Humane Society said, well, that's probably because it's young we're in there and you sealed the opening when the mother was out. I was like, oh, my God, <laughs> <laughs> I did that anyway so there are people who are really good at um keeping that from ha- those kinds of things from happening and they 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 know how to deal with these things humanely so there is a section on the humane society of the united states webpage that um talks about that how to how to choose a a, a professional when you need to do an eviction from your attic uh, if you choose to do so so a lot um, of times but, yeah
2: when that eviction occurs, people think that it's good to transport them to a different area.
3: Yeah, make it someone else's problem. <laughs> My neighbor does that. <laughs> um, yeah, um, that may not be uh, the new. The new thinking is to uh, to to get them out, to seal up the opening where they were getting in, and then just to let them go uh, on your property again, rather than putting them in an environment. Where they don't know where to find food, they may be, you, you may be releasing them into another animal's terrain. So there's going to be aggression. Someone looked at a, uh, someone did a study where they looked at translocating squirrels, uh, and, and the line that I remember from that study is the squirrels did not fare well. <laughs> <laughs> so um, it's not the kindest thing to do. I mean, better that you, know, you know gives them a, it gives them a, a second chance. It's better than killing them, but um, there are other things. To try uh, and um, that are a little a little a little nicer, and it's also illegal in some states, uh, uh, particularly with raccoons uh, because of rabies. The parts of the United States there's rabies, and parts there aren't. So, uh, moving raccoons around can mean moving around the rabies virus. So,
2: has this changed any of your habits with how you approach animals that maybe before you did think of as as pests?
3: Well, yeah, they, there's a, a um, section in the book where I talk about, I was sitting on my deck reading one afternoon, and I saw, looked up to see a roof rat run across the deck. And a roof rat, it's not a sewer rat, it's a smaller, it's its actually kind of a, a cute animal, but because it's a rat, I thought, rat, oh my god, it's a rat! And I immediately thought, we need to go get a snap trap, because I know <laughs> from research uh, uh, on a, a different chapter of the snap trap, if you're going to kill, it's a, uh, um, especially ones that, or uh, have a little funnel for the head. It's a humane, quick death. And I thought I'll get a trap. And then I thought, what, what are you doing, little Miss Coexistence? <laughs> little, miss, little Miss, let's practice exclusion. So um I didn't do anything. And then fast forward a couple of weeks, the rat was scuffling around inside the wall. And my husband's mm. like, your little friend has made his way into the house. But what I did is uh, I set up the wildlife camera and various places and monitored this little guy and and sort of figured we figured out where he's getting in and we um blocked that space while he was out and uh (laughs) uh, happily there were no young in there and um i continued to sort of see him around from time to time this little guy and and so um yeah i i uh, i try to practice what i've preached in the book uh, (laughs) um even even with a rat.
2: <laughs> well, Constance writes, It was my last year of active duty in the Air Force. was living in a cabin in the National Forest outside of Duluth in the dead of winter. I was putting my garbage out, wearing an Air Force-issued parka with a long hood, sort of like a tunnel, so it limited my vision. As I lifted the garbage cover, I bumped into what I thought was my neighbor, Harold. As I turned to apologize, I saw a little brown bear. It was a moment for both the bear and me. Oh, feet don't fail me now. <laughs> Well, Mary Roach, thanks so much for joining us. And Mary Roach's book is Fuzz, When Nature Breaks the Law. Susan Britton produced today's segment. Thanks so much for listening. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim.
6: Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Generosity Foundation, and the Bernard Osher Foundation, supporting higher education and the arts.